Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. And as a child, remember our daddies could do anything at all. By the time we get about nine or 10, we realize they can't. But uh, when we're young, man, such faith that we have. You've seen the story, maybe you've seen it acted out in your own. A child standing up on a platform or something and the father saying, jump and I'll catch you. The young child, he knows nothing other than to jump. Why? Because he trusts his dad. He knows that his father will catch him. There's no doubt in his mind. He has full assurance of faith that my father will catch me if I jump. How important it is to come to Christ at a young age. Jesus invites to him all the little children. He highlights their purity and their trust in the Father. Today, Pastor David will teach us three parables that will talk about the prevailing prayer, the perversity of pride, and the power of purity. We will learn the heart and importance of prayer. If God is going to do his plan anyway, then why pray? We will also learn about the Pharisees' example of pride and how it can destroy you. Jesus resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now here's Pastor David with part two of today's message entitled, Prayer, Pride, and Purity. Even Jesus, as he prayed in the garden, nevertheless, Father, your will be done. And that's the prayer that we need to have continually. And then we need to understand and we need to hold on to that. Lord, I'm lifting this to you. And I trust you wholly to answer this in a way that honors and gives glory to you. And then we can trust him in that. And if his answer is no, then we say, thank you, Lord, for the no's. If his answer is not yet, then we say, Lord, Let me be patient in my persistence. Let me stand fast and firm, knowing that you have heard my prayer and you will answer it at the correct time. You'll bring about that desired response. You know what? I think that every one of us in this room this morning have probably had to battle with that whole idea of either delayed or seemingly unanswered prayers. In one way or another, probably... But in the midst of that, do you lose hope when the answer isn't readily available? We come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, this is happening, this is happening, Lord, I need your answer, and could you give it to me by five o'clock this afternoon? (laughs) How about, can you give it to me this week? Will you answer my prayer this year, Father? And suddenly another year passes. Do we still trust God in the midst of that? Or does it shake our faith and lessen our faith? Are we able to stand firm and fast in the faithful knowledge that God will and does answer prayer? He said he will. He's called for us to pray. He's called for us to, man, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known to God. He's called for us to lay all of these things at his feet. Cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. I can only do that if I have that firm, solid assurance that God is working, God is able, and God will fulfill his work. And I can stand firm in that. And I can trust him in the midst of that. That's the question this parable answers. This unrighteous judge in this parable, he's the antithesis of who God is. He answers only because of this, this woman that's just continually nagging and nagging, get this thing done. Lord, you know, come against my adversary. Judge, give me an answer for this. And he said, man, I've just got to answer. That's not our God. God doesn't tire of our prayers. God delights in our prayers. But is it a prayer of faith or is it a prayer of just, again, uh, I just don't know if you'll ever do this. I just don't know. Even Paul, Remember the word says that Paul prayed three different times for that thorn in the flesh. He repeated a prayer, and that's okay. Not vain repetitions like the heathen do, but it's okay to bring something back to the Lord until you get the answer. His answer may be no, and are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to run with that? Our God is a loving, he's a merciful God, he's a righteous God. The delays in his responses are simply a way of working through the preparation of making all things work together for good. And making that in our lives and in the lives of the people that it might impact. It's through faith in the fullness of who God is that we realize that our God is actively at work at all times throughout all of his kingdom working in and through us in order to accomplish all of his good purposes. God is working that, and I've got to trust that. In the midst of the no answers, in the midst of the not yet answers, in the midst of I haven't heard a thing yet answers, that I can still trust God in the midst of it. That's why we can be assured of that Romans 8.28 verse that says that we know that all things, all things work together for good for those that love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean that all things are good, of course not. The death of a child is a horrible thing. The loss of a job, bankruptcy, terrible things. Disease, these things are not good. But the word promises us that in the grand scheme of things, our God, who is over all things, will work all things together for good. I don't understand how that's gonna work this year for good. I don't know how, how it's gonna work next year for good. But God promises that he will work all things together for good. And yeah, even those hard things in our lives on top of that, we also need to understand our Father knows the things that we have need of before we even ask. So then the question is, well, why do we need to ask? Because it shows our absolute and utter dependence upon him. On him. Lord, I come to you because I trust you to complete this in my life. I trust you to work in my life for your glory. God will avenge when vengeance is necessary. God will make right when things are wrong. Although for now, it seems to be such a long, long time in coming around. But here's the other truth that I want you to get out of the midst of that. 
God's ultimate goal is not vengeance or retribution. Sometimes our goal is that. Lord, break their teeth. You know, I, I love that psalm of David. <laughs> he, he prays that. But again, God's ultimate goal in all ways is for redemption and for reconciliation. And that's the thing we need to understand. Otherwise, why would he have sent Christ for us even to begin with? His ultimate goal is that we would come to Christ for redemption, for reconciliation. Even with that, faith is the requirement for obtaining that redemption. Faith is required for being reconciled to God. And the question is, is will he find faith in you when he returns? Now, when Jesus asked that question there in response to that parable, I don't believe that that deals with saving faith. I believe that that deals with just the trust that I have in him. The trust that I have in him for every day of my life, for every issue, for every situation of my life. I trust him. I have faith in him. Things are, are tight. Things are tough right now. The doctor's report was all bad. The situation between me and this other one, it's, it's terrible. Whatever the deal might be that you're going through, do you have faith that God is more than able able to take care of that situation and work and move within that situation for his glory. And when it's for his glory, guess what? You get to be the recipient of the blessing that falls out when he is glorified in our lives. We get to be the recipients of that blessing. Well, let's move on to the next parable or you'll never get out of here this morning. The next one is the perversity of pride verses uh, 9 through 14. He says, also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, there's a thought right there. Uh, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. You can almost hear him kind of snarl that word out. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than that Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice again to whom this parable is directed he says it's directed to those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and in their self-righteousness despised others. There's no way that can work. You cannot be righteous and despise others. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 13, that whole idea of love. And also it's the words of John in his epistles to the church. If you don't have your horizontal relationships right, your vertical cannot be right. You cannot say that I love God and despise others. The truth is not in you. The word declares that. We've got to have that correct on both sides. You cannot say that I am righteous and yet despise others. And these guys had it totally wrong. There were others within that crowd that I think that that fit, not just the Pharisees, but again, he draws attention to a particular Pharisee in this parable and a tax collector. But you know what, even today, I think there's way too many people that trust in themselves that they are righteous 
And even at that, they continued to despise others. That attitude of despising others and their own exaltation of themselves, that might be based on some kind of religious conviction that they've had. It might be based on ethnicity of themselves and of others. It might be a socioeconomic standing that they think that they're higher than someone else. Whatever the reason, they're easy to look down on others and proudly promote themselves. But the focus of this particular passage is the attitude of that one Pharisee, and he's so proud of himself. He's probably, I would imagine, he has a sore shoulder just from patting his back so much about how good that he thinks that he is. Listen as he tells God how good he is. And actually, Jesus tells us here, he's not so much praying to God as much as he's saying to himself. He was truly a legend in his own mind. He was so good. I mean, he he was one of those guys that God had such a prize when he got this guy on his team, you know. says the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, oh God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, those extortioners, those unjust, those adulterers. Can you see how his nose is kind of up in the air here? And then probably with a real sneer, he says, and even this tax collector, the one that's standing way back there. After all, I, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of everything that I possess. You know, he'd already taken account. He, he's already judged people around him. Maybe he was speaking even about some of his friends or acquaintances. You know, the guy he owes money to. Maybe, maybe he feels that guy is an extortioner. Maybe even in the story about the judge, you think, well, about an unjust judge. Maybe he knows an unjust judge. Maybe a friend or a neighbor of his was an adulterer. Who knows? Maybe. Even the guy in the back, that tax collector. After speaking about the sins of others, he went on to give that short list of all of his good qualities. Fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. By and large, the Pharisees were the most pious of all the people in Israel. At least that's what they appeared to be on the outside. That's what they considered themselves. But on the other end of the scale were the tax collectors. The tax collectors were the most despicable of the population. They were the ones that were considered traitors to the people of Israel because they worked for Rome to collect the taxes from the people of Israel to give to Rome. And the Pharisee knew, there was no doubt in his mind, he was more righteous than this tax collector. But when you hear the prayer of the tax man, beating on his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man knew really clearly what his position was. He knew that he was a sinner. Now, he wasn't flaunting his sin. He was confessing his sin. And there's a world of difference between those two. By his words and by his actions, I believe that this man actually had remorse. He actually had repentance for his sinfulness, something that this Pharisee knew nothing about. Why? Because in his own mind, he didn't have anything to repent of. He didn't have anything to be remorseful of. After all, he was a righteous guy. Oh, man, I'm really righteous. Not like you guys. I fast twice a week. I I tithe of everything. I'm a righteous man. Jesus makes the final outcome or the results pretty clear of these two men's prayers. He says, I tell you, the tax man went down to his house justified rather than that proud Pharisee. 
Jesus adds for every one of us, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And beloved, there's all too often too much Pharisee in every one of us. In every one of us. And there's too little tax collector in every one of us. I think every one of us, I think if we would be truly honest, we would know that there's times that we walk in pride, we walk in prejudice, rather than just having that attitude before God. God be merciful to me, I am a sinner. We need to understand, the tax collector was right on target. The Pharisee missed the target by a mile. But the Lord has a way of humbling the proud and exalting the humble, whether it be in this world or in the next. The Apostle John makes it very clear to all first century believers, but also to you and I. When John writes in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're simply deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, our God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Beloved, who is John writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. He says, you as a believer, you say you're not sinning? You're deceiving yourselves. And the truth isn't in you. But you need to confess your sins. And when you confess your sins, God's faithful. He forgives those. There's way too many believers that said, oh, I prayed for forgiveness, so all of my sins are forgiven, so I don't need to pray for forgiveness anymore because God's got that covered. I beg the pardon that that's not true because when we sin, we need to bring that sin before him. Why? Because it separates us, not in relationship. No, he's still our father, but it it divides us, it separates us in fellowship. It places before us this, this, this thickness of spirit to where we don't hear the words and the wooing and the, those tender, gentle movements of the Holy Spirit in our life. Why? Because we've allowed sin to compound within our lives without confessing it and bringing it before the Father and knowing his continual forgiveness. We're blocking our ears. Why? Because we've allowed sin to separate us in the fellowship of our Father. Let's move on. Last, we look at the power of purity, verses 15 through 17. He also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. It's a normal thing, a rabbi to allow the children to come in and he would lay his hands on and bless them, not too unlike what we do in baby dedications here. But the disciples felt that these children were getting in way of real ministry. No, Jesus, we, we know there's real ministry. That need. Let's move these kids out of the way. And so they began to rebuke the parents. Now, imagine this. The disciples are rebuking parents for bringing their children to Jesus, okay? That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? No, parents, you ought to be bringing your children to Jesus. How great it is also to to come to Jesus at an early age. Let me ask you real quickly, how many of you here this morning, you have made a profession of faith, you came to Christ before you were 16 years of age, before you were 16? Raise your hands. 
Wow, that's great. That is awesome. Isn't it true? There is a greater possibility of coming to faith as a child. And when you come to faith as a child, you have a greater possibility, a greater chance of going on in your life without carrying all of the luggage that someone who comes to faith at a later age does. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some that come to faith at a young age and they become the prodigals and they get a lot of luggage while they're a prodigal and they bring it back, but they're walking with the Lord, but they got luggage, okay? You know what I mean. But for a child to come to Christ early on, what a powerful, powerful thing. Coming to Christ as a child gives us direction and purpose in our lives long before the world lays those patterns within our lives. Children can come with a fullness of faith without any doubt that God can and will and do all that he said that he will and do. As a child, I come in the fullness of faith. Man, as a child, remember, our daddies could do anything at all. By the time we get about nine or 10, we realize they can't. But uh, when we're young, man, such faith that we have. You've seen the story. You, maybe you've seen it acted out in your own. A child standing up on a platform or something, and the father's saying, jump, and I'll catch you. The young child, he knows nothing other than to jump. Why? Because he trusts his dad. He knows that his father will catch him. There's no doubt in his mind. He has full assurance of faith that my father will catch me if I jump. How important it is to come to Christ at a young age. And even the thought and the idea of children anticipating their daddy's return. Oh, as a young child, you wait with anticipation while dad's at work. Oh, he's gonna come back. I'm so anxious for dad to get back. Dad comes back. Man, your arms are open wide as the little ones. You get a little bit older, maybe dad doesn't come back at the time you thought he does. And maybe dad's gone away for a couple of weeks or maybe in the physical sense, dad's no longer there. So a hardness comes over our lives. But I wanna tell you this morning, daddy is coming back. Daddy is coming back. I mean, I thought he was coming back in the 70s. Okay, I was ready for him then. And then I thought he was coming back in the 80s and well, at the millennium, I knew for sure he was coming back then, okay? When I hit 60 somewhere along here, I knew he was coming back before then, too. He hasn't come back yet, but I know that daddy's coming back. I have the full assurance that daddy is coming back. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. We need that kind of faith. We need that kind of assurance to know that our God is fully in charge of all things. I can trust him in every aspect, in every area. I can come to him in prayer and I can know that he's got this thing. And I can live my life then with that fullness, with that assurance. I can come with the full assurance knowing that when I ask him, he will answer. It might not be the answer that I want, but he will answer. And I know that I can cast all my care upon him. Why? Because he cares for me. We need to come to the Father on that continual basis with a fullness of faith and a heart of expectation that our God is actively involved in our lives. He wants to move and work in our lives. And maybe you don't have the innocence of a child anymore, but you know what? You can still come to him fully trusting in his grace and his mercy.
for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. David will continue teaching through the Gospel of Luke next time. Now we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to theopenword.com. You can also subscribe to The Open Word podcast at theopenword.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes store. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to The Open Word podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to theopenword.com and subscribe to The Open Word podcast. Again, to become our Facebook friend and to access the archive of messages, log on to theopenword.com. Now here's Tracy with information about how you can help partner with us. We all know it's vitally important to support the local church, the place we call home. But it's also very important to support missionaries. Have you ever considered that the open word is a missionary work? It is. We need your support as we share God's word over the airwaves. Please prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word. Go to theopenword.com and click on the support option in the main menu. We invite you to join us again for the next study as David shares insights with us from the Gospel of Luke. That's next time on The Open Word. from we-